Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are going behind the sermon with Adam Washington today. And the sermon we're looking at is chapter 9 of John, which is called The Divisive Nature of Miracles. All right, so Adam is here in studio with me today. We are always excited to have him here. Adam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I really look forward to this every week. So today we are doing a behind the sermon episode on the divisive nature of miracles. You can listen to that on either our Facebook live with visuals or on the Paradox podcast. Adam's going to be asking me questions about what went into this sermon, what got cut, and why this sermon ended up in the shape and form that it did as it was presented last Saturday. So Adam, where would you like to start? Yes. So first, kind of unrelated to the sermon in particular, I had somebody come up to me on Saturday and asked me about the name paradox and why the church has that name. Um, I shared a little bit of my knowledge of the name, but um, for the record, here on the Behind the Sermon podcast, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the name paradox? I mean, the Christian story is that God dies, which is a paradox. <laughs> and I think that the whole understanding of faith is ultimate, ultimately paradoxical in nature. And when we started talking about what this thing would be, it would be a church that would celebrate and embrace the paradoxical nature of faith rather than try to smash those boxes or try to make everything fit in nice and neat hmm. order. So paradox is ultimately what we believe about what spirituality is. I mean, Jesus Christ is fully human, fully divine, which is a paradox. And so the more that you look for it and the more you mature in faith, the more you have to be comfortable with what paradox is. So we hope that we can be a companion and a community that helps people as they embrace paradoxes in their faith. Very cool. I didn't know some of that. that was, it's kind of like a, a mission statement built into the name. Very cool. Um, so coming to the sermon now, before we dive into the text, though, I have a question that uh, I don't think we've talked about on the podcast yet, and that's that every week for your sermons, you start by highlighting a, a timeline of the dates that the different accounts of Jesus's life were written. Um, could you take us inside that process a little bit of why that's so important to understand, especially with John's gospel being written later than some of the others and how specifically those relate to the miracles of Jesus? We live in a world where news happens and people report on it on the scene of the news happening, right? Yeah. I mean, you have a phone and you can go Instagram live or Facebook live from your phone and report on what is happening in front of you. That's not how the Bible works. And the Bible didn't have technology to do something like that. And so I think it's important that whenever you read John's gospel is to remind ourselves that this is written probably seven decades after Jesus died. Uh, I think that's important to remember because we often think that this is like crystal clear, airtight reporting um, and that, and a lot of Christians place that emphasis on the Bible, but it just simply isn't there. Mark's gospel plays by a whole different set of rules than John's gospels, but that's probably because it was written, uh, 30 years before when John's gospel was written. Yeah. So sometimes we have to get out of that fact driven, like this is what happened kind of narrative of how we consume stories today. And maybe that it does that relate to you talk a little bit about at the beginning of each sermon, how John takes a look at the story of Jesus and says, this needs some poetry or this needs some allegory. This needs more metaphor. Um, does that kind of relate to that idea as well that we need to 
kind of break out of that mindset of the, the facts first and maybe get into more of the poetic and allegorical nature of the Gospels? Yeah, I think so. And if you were to ask a 70-year-old about a time when uh, he or she met their spouse for the first time, mm. if they started telling you about the color of the tablecloths and went into obsessive detail about the stitch count of the tablecloths, you'd be <laughs> like, what? <laughs> uh, but if they tell you the story of who that person is and whether or not the facts all line up perfectly, as long as it captures the essence of that person, that person has essentially told you what is true, even though the details may not be the same. I think that's mm. exactly what John's going for. Nice. That's great. That's great. Um, anything you want to say about John being a, one of the later gospels compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And does that ever play into the miracles of Jesus differently than some of the miracles of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah, don't trust John's gospel over the others when it comes to historical accuracy. Mm. I mean, on anything. <laughs> That's for sure. That, I mean, they, John definitely reports different things than the other gospels yeah. in different orders. Um, and when John does that, it's for a narrative and to increase or make the narrative more accurate of who Jesus was. Um, when Mark does it, Mark is much more concerned with getting things right in the right order. But even then, he's recording things four decades after the life of Jesus. So you have to take that with a grain of salt as well. Yeah. And so I guess kind of coming back to what you were saying earlier about the name paradox, like part of what we want to do is embrace those different differences in the narrative and, and be kind of learn to be like, okay, and comfortable with with those kinds of things. Is that kind of what that Absolutely. Is? And when you think about these stories, um, 300 years after, oh, yeah, 300 years after these Gospels were written, uh, a group of people sat around in Carthage and decided to include all four Gospels in the Bible. And they did that not to get all the facts and details right, but to capture the essence of who Jesus was. Nice. And I think that's yeah. something that's been lost by our Christian tradition today. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, John chapter 9 was the miracle that you preached on. This is one of my, probably one of my favorite miracles in the Gospels. Um when Jesus first encounters this blind man with his disciples at the beginning of this story, um, you talked about it and it alludes to it in the text that there's this belief during the time that any sort of illness like a blindness was a sign of God's punishment. And at least when I look around at Christianity today, many times I see like the ghost of this theology that still exists. What are, what are some examples that you see in Christianity where there's this idea that if you do something if something, if something bad happens to you, it's God punishing you. Well, I think that you can't escape that in the fact that, uh, I, I mean, there was, there's a story recently of a, a grandmother whose granddaughter died in a climbing accident. And she's convinced that it was because God was punishing her for something. The grandma or the, the... grandmother? Oh, wow. And uh, this, is, this is a f friend of my family's that went through this mm -hmm. and... It's inescapable. I mean, there's this sense that when a tragedy happens, you deserve it. And there are times that you do, right? Mm -hmm. There are times that you do bring it upon yourself. I think that human beings ask the question why when they suffer is to get to the root of whether or not the suffering they encounter is preventable. Um, for instance, when somebody has lung mm -hmm. cancer, they say why, like out loud and ask that question to the heavens. And if they look back at their life and it's because they smoked their whole life, they say, oh, I could have prevented this. Right. Now, the Christian community will quickly judge people who participate in preventable suffering 
and distance themselves, which I think is anti-Christian. Mm. Um, you know, they won't, sh- the Christian community hasn't shown sympathy to people who suffer from lung cancer if they have smoked, which I think is a problem. But um, there are times that we ask the question, why when we suffer? And there is no answer. And that's unpreventable suffering. Mm. And that's a suffering that's really difficult to comprehend and get our heads around because uh, we would rather have an answer and understand why we're experiencing the pain that we do than to have it open-ended and just say, well, suffering happens and you are yeah. the victim of this story. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Um, kind of going along those same lines, you mentioned something in the sermon that I'd never heard before. And that was that one of the beliefs during the time was that you could be sinful in the womb before you were even born. And that's why a blindness or some sort of illness would befall you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that idea and where that developed in, in the culture of, of Jesus's time? I can't, I don't know a whole bunch about it. I'm pretty sure I read it in William Barclay's commentary. Gotcha. Um, I'll correct that on the, the link with this one, if that's the wrong spot. Um, but that's what I, that's where I remember it off the top of my head of coming, where it came from. Uh, I thought that was interesting, but I mean, you can see that this is a theological debate that is raging in the fact that there's this blind guy on the side of the road and immediately the disciples ask Jesus to answer the debate, mm. right? Like, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because um, it has to be one or the other. Right. And Jesus says, actually, it's neither. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because we are often convinced that Jesus would enter our debates and pick a side on a lot of things. Um, we have to remember there are definitely times that the debate itself is wrong hmm. because it's preventing us from compassion. And I think that's what this story is about. Yeah. And that could have been a whole, a whole nother sermon in yeah. itself. That's, I mean, that's you got to pick one at the end of the right? day. <laughs> yeah. Of the hundreds of possibilities. Although that's, that's why preaching st- remains so, so much fun, at least from a pastoral perspective, from my perspective is that there's always something new to be discovered in the texts. Um, you decided to humanize the blind man in John 9 by giving him a name, and the name that you chose was Chuck. Any reason behind the name? Like, take us behind behind the scenes of Craig's brain. I think it's funny. <laughs> it's <laughs> no. a funny name. And if you're named Chuck and you're listening, God loves you too. That's all I can say. But I just think it sounds funny. And, like, I, the line that I like, which, uh, you know, I put in parentheses on Saturday, where, you know, I put in parentheses the name Chuck, Um the line that I liked is when they're trying to figure out if it's Chuck, they say it is Chuck or it isn't Chuck. It's someone like Chuck. And he has to say, I am he. But in, when you put the parentheses on, it says, I am Chuck, which just sounds funny to me. That's <laughs> like, did you go through like say. a bunch of different names? Like I did. Or yeah. did that's pretty it's funny. Dumb. It's a waste of time, but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. It just was the funniest name. And like I said, I, I know a couple Chucks and they're great people, but I just felt like, just felt like it was funny if he says, I am Chuck. I actually don't think I know anybody named Chuck except for Charles Barkley. Well, he's one. That's, he's definitely one. That's the only one. Yeah. So as we continue on in the miracle with Chuck, um, Jesus uses his saliva and mud to heal this man's blindness. Um, what's up with that? Why does Jesus, why do you, is there any, any lesson or allegory or, or, or point to Jesus using that method specifically? Because it seems, especially if you're not Christian and you read that story for the first time, it can seem very strange. Yeah, so, so much of the sin and the concept of what it meant to be sin, uh, sinful, excuse me, in the era of Jesus is the idea that there are those who are clean and those who are dirty. 
There are those who are holy and those that are profane, right? And this man, who I've named Chuck, uh, is considered dirty by society. He's considered unclean by society. He's considered a sinner and is kind of the underbelly of what society is, right? And the tragic part of the story is that he was blamed for being the underbelly and he was blamed as part of the problem for dragging society down. So you have Chuck who is considered to be unclean by the religious establishment and Jesus takes the dirtiest thing he can find, which is dirt, (laughs) and he uses that to heal Chuck and to essentially make him clean Hmm. in the religious establishment's eyes. So here you have someone who's considered dirty being washed by dirt. Um, And he does go and wash in the pool, but it's all part of the same thing. And rather than making him cleaner, Jesus makes him dirtier, which I think is quite symbolic. Very cool. That again, could be another sermon right there. That's that's what I pick one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Were there actually, we'll just, we'll just stay on that for a second. Were there any other ideas that you thought about taking the sermon, we'll get to the, the whole idea of uh, having a sense of superiority in just a second, which was the main idea, but were there any other ideas with the miracle that you had? Yeah, the first draft of this sermon was about how the Pharisees wanted to keep uh, Chuck imprisoned in this prison of sin, essentially. Okay. okay. And so I was going to talk about mass incarceration from that angle and the fact that our society needs to keep African-Americans imprisoned for our society's economy. Um, and the, the horrific sin that that is. Uh, so I actually had a, an anecdote about Maya Moore, who's a basketball player, and her recent advocacy for criminal justice reform and talking about that. But as I continued to write this story, I felt like it was a better way to talk about mass incarceration on a personal level from the idea that so much of what we do and so much of what has happened in America's history has been this desire by white Americans to prove their superiority over people of color. Gotcha. Well, yeah, we'll get to we'll get to some of the some of those examples in just a bit. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about this exchange. And you had uh, on the live stream or in at, at the church service, you had the graphics department kind of help out with uh, with these stick figures, which was hilarious. Um, but you had this whole exchange between the the blind man in John chapter nine and the blind man's neighbors not recognizing him, which I thought was really fascinating because there's this moment of healing where this man who is blind can now see. And yet this exchange between him and his neighbors, nobody's rejoicing, nobody's celebrating, nobody's happy for him. They're just questioning him. Um, what's the point of this whole lengthy exchange in this story? Um, what, what's kind of going on here in, in this point? I think it shows there's a difference between being known and being loved. Hmm. And I don't get the sense that any of his neighbors loved him. Because, I mean, if you if you truly love someone and they go from experiencing kind of the worst that society has to offer and they all of a sudden have a ticket out of it and you can't rejoice for them, but you want to meet the person who saved them, you don't really care about that person. So these neighbors know who Chuck is, but they're indifferent toward him and his success or his upward more mobility on the whole. And I think that's what the story is revealing there. Yeah, you talked a little bit too about um, missing the miracle, right? How religion can sometimes keep you from missing the miracle. Um, did that kind of play in, into that as well? Yeah. Those people aren't though that religious. I think that they're the average religious, like Mm. most of us are. Sure. Um, I mean, once you get to the Pharisees, that becomes really apparent, but, um, the neighbor's, uh, viewpoint and their 
paradigm that they're looking through the story with is colored by religion. And so, yes, religion definitely does play a part of it there. That brings us to the other group of people who encounter the blind man in John chapter nine, which is the religious leaders or the, or the Pharisees. Um, you mentioned that the Pharisees were kicking people out of the temple system who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And at the end of the story, they end up taking the blind man out of, out of the religious establishment as well. Um, and you mentioned towards the end of that, that uh, today, if we were to experience this story in John chapter nine, that the critique would be at religious leaders in America today. Could you unpack that a little bit and tell us uh, why that would be and why that's important for us? Yeah, we forget that Jesus was Jewish. And so a lot of Christians have read stories like this one and read it in a very anti-Semitic way, saying that their tribe missed it, but our tribe will get it, which is definitely not the point of the story. (laughs) Um, Jesus does not deconvert Chuck from his Judaism. Jesus himself is still a Jew not only through this story, but through his entire lifetime. And I would even say that he's Jewish through his resurrection um, and not just uh, ethnically, but also religiously. Mm. Um, And so I I had to specify that because it's a critique of religious elitism, not a critique of the tribe of Judaism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. (laughs) I know something growing up. That's one of those things where I look back on some of the things I was taught growing up, especially in kind of cringe at of how anti-Semitic the language, not intentionally anti-Semitic, but still <laughs> anti-Semitic at its core. Uh, I look back at that and, and, and am concerned and cringe a lot of that, how much that was the narrative that was painted. Yeah, and the religious denomination I grew up in um, actually interpreted the Pharisees as the Catholics. And so they would look at this story and say like, oh, the religious elites, the Catholics, yeah. not like us, the Adventists, <laughs> which is the tribe I grew up in. And um, yeah, it's problematic. It's it's not what it is at all, in my opinion. Uh, it's it's not get rid of that tribal identity for this new tribal identity. It's the way that religion leads us if we aren't aware of the temptation that, religious, that religion causes. It seems in a horrible way, almost natural though or easy to point out another group of people and say those religious leaders got it wrong or in, in, as you just mentioned like a different denomination nowadays catholicism or, or another tribe got it wrong than it is to acknowledge no no we're actually the religious leaders in that story or, yeah i mean if you're always identifying with the the heroes of the bible <laughs> right, right. and you never see yourself in the villains <laughs> you might not be reading the bible in the full depths and the full color of what it can actually be mm. Um, so if you, if you're ever like, oh yeah, I'm always the good guy in the story. You you probably have a problem with the Bible. Nice. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great thing to keep in mind. Um, towards the end of the conversation between the blind man and the Pharisees, uh, the blind man makes this statement where he says, Jesus, the man who healed me must be from God because he healed me essentially. And God wouldn't give him the power to heal me if he wasn't from God, essentially. Um, This made the Pharisees really, really upset. And it was kind of this moment where, as you said, the blind man was trying to teach something new about God. um, And that caused a reaction from this group of people. Kind of more of a personal question. Has there ever been a time where you discovered or thought that God was kind of expanding in your life or teaching you something new about God and you tried to share that and it was... 
it was rejected. I mean, yeah, I mean, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not because I get it more than other people. Sure. As much as the minute you work in a religious denomination, uh, and I'm, I'm not picking on one denomination here, um, any religious denomination, the minute you start to show how God is bigger than the denomination, the denomination will almost always push back on that. Um, because the denomination, it, it's, its structure is built on the idea that we get God better than everybody else, right? Yeah, yeah I and, never thought of it that way, but, but yes, that's very um, I, And I know there's denominations that don't function that way, but that's the minority of denominations, right? Like there are a few fo- that, that, that totally get that, and um, I don't want to speak for them necessarily, but I just want you to know that this isn't all, but it's definitely the majority. And the idea is that we understand God better than everyone else. And yeah, everyone else can join us in heaven, but we're going to lead the way. Mm. Um, so I think that the minute that you start saying stuff that reveals that God works outside of a denomination, it get, makes people inside a denomination very uncomfortable very quickly. Um, I, I like just, I mean, I know this happens all the time, but like when I'd invite a guest speaker who wasn't part of the denomination I was working for, it always made people extremely uncomfortable because what does this person have to teach us? We mm. should be teaching them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That leads right into the next thing I wanted to ask you. Um, this blind man was, was blind. He uh, was considered by society to be definitely on the lower parts of the, of the social ladder. Um, and yet he was in this moment teaching something new about God or, or revealing something or speaking to something new about God. Um, what are some groups of people or individuals today that uh, we can learn from as Christians that we often will push off to the side or, or dismiss like, like the blind man in John chapter nine that we can actually learn about God from today? I would say anybody who has experienced suffering is someone we can learn from and is willing to honestly talk about suffering, whether that's discrimination or poverty or has experienced the death of a loved one. And as long as they're not placing that conversation of suffering in an evangelistic effort, then I think that they're worth listening to. Um, I, I think the minute that they're they're honest and open about what they've experienced is the minute they can teach us something about God. Because anyone who has suffered is also someone who is loved. And I believe that God is found somewhere uh, in between the paradox and the inner relationship of those two. Nice. Wow. Wow. That's a lot to think about. That was great. Um, thank you. Um, lastly, when we're talking about the the miracle in John chapter 9, before we get into some of the illustrations that you used, Jesus uh, says this statement that's that's kind of uh, radical and, and harsh, where he says, uh, for those who are blind, I have come to give sight. But then he also says, on the other flip side of the coin, for those who claim to have sight, I've come to make them blind. Um, why does Jesus use this language? I was paraphrasing, obviously, what he was saying, um, but why is that such an important statement in, in totality? That's the line that took me by surprise when I was going back to this, um, this story. It's the, the thing that I learned that was new for, with having to preach on this story. Um, because 
I, I just never heard that. <laughs> I never yeah. heard uh, any of my teachers, anybody ever tell me, hey, God gives sight to the blind, but also blindness mm. to those who see. You never hear that in songs, right? Never heard it in songs, <laughs> never heard it taught. And I, I'm not, like, there's there's definitely, especially in seminary teachers that knew that, right? And I'm not, you can only teach so much, so sure. I'm not trying to blame them. As much as it's, I feel like it's just as important whenever you teach uh, God gives the bl- sight to the blind, that the opposite is true as well. And for whatever reason, we don't teach that. And I think we don't teach that because inherently it's speaking to religious people. And so much of religion is built on the idea that you can become better in God's eyes if you do these practices, mm. which is as anti-gospel as I can possibly imagine now as after studying this stuff for years, right? Yeah. Um, the whole gospel message is that God meets us in our brokenness. And when we're our least religious is when God would say is when you understand God the best. Mm. Um, and so when I look at this story and the fact that Jesus says that, it all of a sudden becomes this whole story about, wait a second, the Pharisees aren't that mad about Jesus breaking the Sabbath in this story. They're mad that all of a sudden Chuck has climbed up the social hierarchy and that social hierarchy is what keeps them in power. So they have to kick Chuck out because if they don't, then it questions their whole power structure and they may have to give up something in order to accommodate who God actually is. Mm. Okay, so moving to some of the illustrations that you used, uh, you told a, a great story of Martin Luther King Jr. talking to a white prison guard while he was in prison um, and some of the psychology of superiority in racist America. So when we're talking about this idea, and you, you talked a little bit about um, a quote from one, one of the presidents, I can't remember which one it was. Lyndon Johnson. Yes, thank you, Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, how does this idea of superiority in racist America um, apply or manifest in both racism and religion in America today? I think I understand the current state of American politics much better after hearing this sermon that was given in 1968 by Martin Luther King Jr., and I mean, you talk about 50 years ahead of his time. I mean, he was definitely preaching to his hour's need. But to hear about how uh, this prison guard was so poor he couldn't send his own kids to school, but the only thing that was keeping him employed in the system and preventing him from marching and protesting was that society had convinced him that as long as he supports these politicians, they'll make sure that he's taken care of better than the black Americans. Um, it seems kind of like the same thing over again that's happening right now. Uh, and so much of what we see from current administrations is that same promise of, hey, if you vote for me, it's definitely going to be better for you than that other guy. And I'll make sure that you at least stay at where you are and you won't go down at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a brilliant SNL sketch with Tom Hanks where uh, Tom Hanks is a racist. He plays a racist guy that goes on Black Jeopardy. <laughs> and what happens is they they start answering questions about what it's like to be poor in America. And uh, Tom Hanks wearing a MAGA hat and have, I think he has tattoos on or something, but <laughs> you can picture what he looks like, right? He, he also ends up bonding with all the other black contestants on, right. on the show um, because they realize that they share in common that they are oppressed by the same system. 
Uh, but then that all changes when Final Jeopardy's answer is lives that matter. And they're like, well, it was nice knowing you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant sketch. Yeah. It's so good because it, it shows you how much socioeconomic things are what differentiate this country more than anything else. And the only reason that white America goes along with it is because America has promised that we'll take care of you better than black America, which is ultimately a message of white supremacy. And that is a sin that the church resoundingly needs to stand up and condemn and point out and educate people as to where white supremacy comes from and why we need to get rid, why we need to do our best to be aware of it and also to not fall to the temptation of that sin. Amen. Um, where does the idea of, uh, spiritual blindness and, uh, religious superiority, superiority come into that idea as well? Into the idea of white supremacy or something else? Uh, yeah, specifically churches, uh, like you said, uh, churches need to make a stand, um, against the sin of white supremacy, but how does, how does that play into the religious or spiritual realm specifically talking about, uh, the spiritual blindness that Jesus speaks of in John 9? Yeah, so when somebody comes along in America that's white and says that racism is dead, that is a person who needs blindness. Because what they are declaring is that they can see all of America Mm. and they they have unequivocally stated that racism was a problem of the past and it's not something we struggle with now. To someone who says, I see all that, Jesus would grant them the miracle of blindness. And allow them to understand that they don't see it all, that there actually is racism that they don't experience because of the privilege that they have because of the color of their skin. And so that's how I think the, the two interplay with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is kind of more of a personal question for me. Um, and uh, it deals with the same concept as well, though. But you gave several examples of, of racism throughout America's history, the Declaration of Independence um, and the signers of the Declaration um, holding slaves as, as they were signing it. Um, convict leasing, you talked about mass incarceration, and I just personally have such a hard time understanding how we as a nation have allowed these things to continually happen when America claims to be a nation that's predominantly Christian and followers of Jesus. Um, So my question is, like, how do we how do like is there any hope to breaking this cycle? Is is there any hope to breaking this cycle and living in, in the kingdom that Christ talked about? And if so, how do we make those practical steps today? I think we begin by acknowledging that white supremacy is America, Mm. right? Like it's not an outlier. It's not a fringe idea. It's been at the core of what has made our nation and what our nation currently is. Like the minute that we start to acknowledge that and accept that is the minute that we can begin to dismantle it. But it's really hard to dismantle it when so much of the debate, especially from white of America, is, well, white supremacy isn't real. So you have to be willing to stand up and declare that America is equivalent to white supremacy. And I know that makes people really uncomfortable, and we want to have a lot of pride in our country. We want to feel really good about what our country has done. And I I understand that, and there have been some good moments in American history, But when you look at the story of America's history from the perspective of a black person or an indigenous person or uh, any person of color, you realize it's a very, very different story very quickly. 
I recently heard, um, oh man, I can't remember who said it, but they were talking about how you can tell the entire history of white America without ever once mentioning the FBI. And that is impossible to do when talking about the history of black America. Hmm. And that's one of those moments that I never thought about. And I would never think about if I didn't listen to uh, minorities talk about their experience in America. And I, I'm not the best person at all. This, right. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, I've had to learn a lot. I'm still learning a ton, but I think it's irresponsible for, I mean, really every preacher in America to ignore the white supremacy that has shaped America's history. And we need to step up and condemn it and call it what it is and say that this is what has defined American history. And once we do that, I believe that we can start to work to move beyond that. Um, you talked a, a little bit about how, and I think you quoted somebody on this as well, but racism hasn't gone away in America. It's kind of morphed, though, sometimes in very sinister, under-the-table and sneaky ways. How can we, as followers of Christ in, in 2020, be more aware of these systemic problems and, and take action? Read books by black authors. And don't read Ben Carson. <laughs> read, read books by black authors who are critical of white America. <laughs> because you can read black authors who are compliant with white America, right? And for some of those authors, white America has worked out really well for them, hmm. right? But if you think that America's great, and you really think that America is a great country, and you only read black authors who tell you America is great, you're only getting a very tiny fraction of the actual story of black history. So if people really want to do something, they don't know where to start, I would say the first thing you can do is read black authors. Um, for white, my white brothers and sisters who have struggled with talking about racial issues or understanding racial issues, the best place to start, in my opinion, is Ajema Aluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race. In that book, she talks about um, basically all the things that you've heard, but you haven't really defined. Mm. And I think she writes really eloquently, um, really, <laughs> and really, um, it's just a really well done book. And so I really recommend starting there. But um, I, yeah, if, if you look at the books that you've read in the past year, and none of them are by black authors, maybe you should change that. Mm. I mean, for the month of February, I read only black authors. Mm. Um, if you're not a reader, watch movies directed by black directors. Um, uh, Selma was a life-changing movie for me. Um, I think Ava DuVernay is an excellent director. 13th is another movie that she did that was excellent. Um, If you're only watching movies made by white directors and only reading books written by white authors, you're not going to understand what America is except for white Americans, which is a different story than everybody else. Yeah, and so it kind of, Am I correct in saying, or close, somewhat correct in, in saying that um, this whole idea in John chapter 9 is um, saying that if, if you've only seen the world from one perspective and yet claim to see it all, mm-hmm. you've missed it. Yes. And that's, what, that's, what, that's why Jesus condemns so heavily in verse 41, which is the last verse, when he says, when you say we see, that is the moment that you sin. Mm. And that's really hard for us to get our, our, our head around because so much of religion has promised people 
that if you join our religion, then you'll see finally. Yeah. Right? So Jesus says, um, if you feel like you see and understand all of the racial issues within America, and especially if you're coming from a majority perspective, which is white in America, you probably don't. And the minute you say, I have nothing more to learn, is the minute that you need the miracle of blindness in your life to understand that there is so much more beyond uh, what you can't see. Yeah. I, I would imagine some people who would critique you or criticize the sermon would say, like, Craig's not proud to be an American. What, what would you say to that? I mean, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like being an American, but, like, to be proud right now, I, I mean, it's kind of hard, isn't it? And is that really the goal, is pride? Because I feel like that's a sin. So I don't, I, I don't know if, like, if we have this sense that the only true American is the proud American, then what we've said is that when we possess pride, we're all of a sudden the best that America can offer. Mm. So I, I, Despite I, anything. Yeah, <laughs> like, is that really the highest form of, of patriotism is mm. pride? Because that's a sin. It's one of the seven deadly sins, <laughs> right? So I, I wouldn't say that that's my goal. My goal is to be honest about what America is, um, to help make America the best country it can be in my small corner of California, which is Redlands. Um, that's, that's what I think it means to be a real American, not, not somebody who just you know, distributes propaganda and tells people that America is a country that it isn't. Um, I know you talked a little bit about uh, some of the other directions that the sermon we're was going and that kind of thing. Um, is there anything else that you want to share that got cut from the sermon? There's anything different uh, angles or things that you you almost went with that you didn't end up or didn't end up making the final cut. I think we've talked about most of them. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any other channels other than those. Cool. Um, was there? Uh, you talked about one thing. Um, but is there anything new that you learned in this story? that you were like, I, that is so strange or weird, or I've never heard that before. It's really that last conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, I guess that's one part that got cut. So this actually rolls right into John 10 and Jesus still yeah. talks to the Pharisees. It's continuing. And um, yeah, this part got cut now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, he says one of the most famous lines in all of John's gospel when he says, I have uh, the thief comes to kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's talking to the Pharisees in this story about Chuck. And most people don't know that. And the reason he says that is because um, he's talking about the Pharisees' blindness and their willingness to kick out somebody because he makes them uncomfortable, as opposed to what real faith is or what real understanding of God is, is the ability to look at those who are poor and ask, how can they have a more abundant life? How can they have a life that's more, uh, that's better for them? And he said, that's where faith will challenge your pride in your religious ego and ask you to do something and have compassion on Chuck rather than judging who Chuck is. Awesome. Um, that was my last question. Is there anything that you'd like to add or uh, some takeaways that you hope that people who listen to your sermon on live stream, listen to it in person or the podcast uh, that you hope they know? Yeah, whether you listen online or you're in person with us on Saturday mornings, I just want to say thank you. I never, I never would have imagined 10 years ago I would preach a sermon like this. 
Um, and I just am so grateful that we have a community where I can speak honestly about things. And not only that, but it's not just me speaking, but it's people who engage in the discussion. And I find that incredibly valuable and just rewarding to be part of. We just crossed four years as a community together, and it's just been a great, great four years. And I think the thing that has defined Paradox more than anything else is the honesty of our conversation. And so I wanna say thank you to everyone who participates in this thing in whatever form it is that I appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to where this continues to lead in year five and, year be- and beyond. 